Good morning. The reading of God's Word will be in Ephesians again, chapter 4, and verse 28. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone who is in need. This is the reading of God's Word. Amen. You may be seated. Good morning, Redemption. Uh, it's my privilege to uh, introduce our guest speaker this morning. Uh, it's uh, Josh Prather. He's an elder at Redemption Arcadia. He does a lot of work on cross-cultural and uh, kind of global outreach. He works with all the, uh, the churches in the Redemption community. And uh, we're honored to have him here. This is a time of year where lots of people are out on vacation, and so we're, uh, we're, we're privileged and thankful for Josh uh, being willing to come down and talk to us. So please uh, give him a hand as he comes up. Well, good morning. It's great to be here with you all this morning. Let me pray, and then we'll uh, jump into it. God, thank you so much for this time together. God, I pray for your word. God, I pray that you use me as you see fit. God, I pray that uh, you open our hearts to what it is that you'd have us receive. God, you tell us that there's power in your word. You tell us that Jesus is the word. So, God, I pray that you'd give us Jesus clothed in the scriptures this morning. May we see him. May we fall in love with him. God, and may we be devoted to him. God, so now I pray that you would just use me. God, speak through me, all for your glory. In the name of Jesus and all God's people said, amen. So let me give you a little outline of what I'm going to be talking through, um, and then we'll actually jump into it. So first, I want to give a little context through the biblical story. I'm going to start us back in Genesis 1 and kind of walk us through how we get to where we're at in Ephesians. And then I'm going to build some context in Ephesians just to remind us. You've been going through this series, but I think it's really good to be reminded, especially in the first few chapters of Ephesians. They're so important to understanding our text. After that, we'll take a little time in our text, kind of diving in and seeing what God has for us in the text we're going to be talking about. And then from that, we're going to move to, okay, in light of the text, where do we see the gospel? So how has Jesus come alive in this text? How does he move us from the gospel towards our mission in the world? God is always, always, always moving us towards our neighbors. And then we end our time with talking about hope. So in light of our mission, what do we have to hope for in the future? So the main point of today is, and really this is just the text is the main point, we are a people who do not steal, work honestly, and live with generosity. We are a people who do not steal, work honestly, and live with generosity. So let's go back to Genesis 1. I'm going to talk through the biblical story a little bit before we get to our text. We were created to mirror God to the world as image bearers, and Paul talks about this in Ephesians 4.24. He reminds us to put on the new self, created in the likeness of God. So what Paul is doing is calling us to remember who God actually created us to be because he's speaking to the church in Ephesus, but they are not who God actually created them to be. They're trying to live into that reality, live into the reality that Christ has been resurrected. They're a new creation, but what really is happening is God is trying to restore who they were, created in the likeness of God, that was lost in Genesis 1 and 2 before we actually walked away from God. Adam was created to work in the garden. 
doing honest work with his hands for the good of the world. Genesis 2.15 says, The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. So, Paul is referring, so what Paul is referring to in our passage is really nothing new. It is built into our DNA to work honestly for the good of others. However, that's marred. And Paul is trying to wake it back up and saying, not stealing, honest work, looking towards your neighbor. These are things that are actually baked into your DNA. If we went back to Genesis 1 and 2, I want you to imagine actually walking in the garden with God with the person that you love the most. Isn't this incredible what Adam and Eve actually had the opportunity to experience? My wife and I love to rock climb, or we'll put it this way, we did rock climb quite a bit until uh, I had our three-year-old daughter. Um, But now life looks a little different. If you're a parent and you have kids, you know the things that you used to love to do or what you spent time doing, you don't have as much time for that. But there's a spot we always remember, and it's called Isolation Canyon on your way to Payson. Um, You pull off the road, and you'd never know how to get there unless someone told you. And then even when you park, it's an hour walk to the actual canyon where you climb. So you come into this valley, you're scaling rocks, um, not actually having to tie into rock climb, but you have to know what you're doing to scale the rocks. You come up to a plateau that looks pretty standard, stereotypical Arizona landscape when you're at the plateau. And then all of a sudden, you come over the ridge, and you look into the valley, and my wife referred to it and still does as Never Never Land. It's like a paradise tucked away near Payson with butterflies. Like, I have climbed a lot of rocks, put my hands in a lot of cracks, and I'll tell you, there's a lot of crazy things that'll come out of the rocks in Arizona. I remember one time I stuck my head in a crack, and there was a massive lizard about two inches from my hand, and it freaked me out. But here, I stuck my hand in the crack, and butterflies flew into my face. I'm not joking. I'm like, where are we right now? And I thought about that when I thought about this, because there I had my wife, I had God, and it was this incredible experience, walking in the garden with God, just like Adam and Eve were. But why was this paradise, and why does paradise in these moments for us not not enough? Why was honest work for God's good and for the good of a neighbor not enough for Adam and Eve? Because sadly, we have a problem in our lives, and that problem is sin, Satan, and evil that is now in God's creation. You want to know what the first theft was? It was Eve taking what didn't belong to her. That fruit belonged to God. That tree belonged to God. That garden belonged to God. And not only that, God said, don't take it. This isn't yours. It doesn't belong to you. So you shouldn't eat it. But what did Eve do? She, she took it and she ate it because there's something in us that leads us away from God. So in that moment, Eve walks away from God and now our identity is severed and we're just never satisfied. We always crave more. Our relationship with God is broken and we find ourselves struggling with greed. Our relationship with creation is broken and we work for dishonest gain, or we're lazy and we don't work at all. Our relationship with creation is broken and the work is dishonest. We hear the same lies today. God offers us himself. He offers us honorable work. He gives us neighbors to love, but we choose greed, dishonesty, and laziness over God. So from this moment forward, 
where Eve committed the first theft, we move forward, and this is still the challenge that we face in 2018. Many of us live today like uh, Al Pacino's character, Tony Montana, in Scarface. Anybody familiar with Scarface? Anybody familiar with Scarface? An old 1983 classic gangster film. And there's a moment early on in the film before uh, Tony Montana becomes Tony Montana, the gangster that a lot of us are familiar with. And he's in the car, and he looks over at his friend, and he says, I want what's coming to me. It's Al Pacino's character, Tony Montana. I want what's coming, coming to me. And his friend says, well, what's coming to you? And he says, the whole world and everything in it. Moving from Genesis 3, we work hard um, to gain the whole world because we're greedy and nothing ever satisfies us. Just like Tony Montana, we're not satisfied with what God's given us. So there's greed that permeates our reality. There's laziness, and we think the world actually owes us something. We come to the world and say, I don't want to take the world. The world owes me. And this is what frames us. And this is the context that moves us in to Ephesians. So now moving to Ephesians. We come to Ephesians and find out in chapter 1 that the world doesn't actually belong to Tony Montana, Al Pacino's character in Scarface, and the world doesn't belong to us. The world actually belongs to God. The world belongs to Jesus, and not only did Jesus make the world and own the world, in Ephesians 1, we find out that Jesus reconciles the world back to himself, because when Eve committed that first theft, the whole world, all of God's good creation is permeated with sin, so we don't just need our hearts reconciled, we need someone to reconcile the whole of God's creation. I'm sure you've talked about this already in Ephesians, and that's what Jesus does. We no longer have to live in chapter 1 just to connect it with our passage. We no longer have to live lazy or greedy lives. In Christ, we are blessed beyond what we can comprehend. Now our whole lives are lived in gratitude to God and generosity towards others. And in chapter 2, Paul continues on to remind us that we weren't always like this. Because chapter 1, he says, you're blessed if Church in Ephesus, you're blessed beyond what you can possibly comprehend, but remember, you weren't always like this. This wasn't always your reality. You once were walking away from God. He says, sons and daughters of disobedience. And then he says, the Gentiles, Paul says in chapter 2, that were once separated and not part of the promises that God had planned for Israel have now been grafted in. And he continues to talk through this in chapter 3, this revelation that the Gentiles black and white, Jew and Gentile, Latino, now come together under one banner and one Lord, and that is Jesus Christ, one community, reconciled through God. And this is a revelation given to Paul in chapter 3. And why these first chapters are so important is because it's reminding us of the why. Has anyone heard of Simon Sinek, leadership guru? Heard of him? Simon Sinek talks about leading with the why. And this is nothing new because it's what Paul is doing right here. He says, consumers and people in society, they don't want to hear what you do. They don't want to hear how you do it. This, he's talking to organizations mostly, but we're here as Christians, and I think it's important for us. They want to hear why. And that's what Paul is doing in the first three chapters of Ephesians. He's reminding us why we live the way we're supposed to live because our passage when we get to it is so practical. 
It's just practical for everyday life, what we're supposed to do, how we're supposed to do it. But if we don't remember the why that everything comes from Christ and returns to Jesus because of what he has done on our behalf, then it never stays and it'll never stand. And that's why these letters coming together are so important. Paul in the first three chapters building the why that everything stands on Jesus. And then chapter four, he continues this vision of unity and oneness. And then there's an important section right before we get to our verse that I want to read that talks through this new life that you now have. Paul in this section that I'm going to read is speaking to Gentiles. And he's saying, you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do, but remember who you are. Remember your new identity. You're no longer a son or daughter of disobedience. You're a son son or daughter of God. You're adopted into God's family. Not only that, you have a new family. That community that you once identified with is no longer your people. Your people are the church. That's now your people. But what I want you to do as I read through this, don't think about the Gentiles and don't put yourself into the first century. Think about your people. Not the church. If you're a Christian, your people are the church. But think about those who society or you may have always connected yourself with. Before you came to know Christ, who would you have identified with as your people, your culture, the people that you were associated with, the people that you identified with? Or who is society still telling you to this day that you don't link yourself under the lordship of Jesus and you don't link yourself to the church, you link yourself and you're a part of something else? So as I read this, think about that. Have that in, have that in the back of your mind as I'm reading this. And this is starting in verse 17, chapter 4, leading to our text. Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. Think about the people that society now in 2018 are trying to connect you with or you once identified with. In the futility of their minds, they are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greeted to practice every kind of impurity, but that is not the way you learn Christ. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him, as is the truth in Jesus, to put off the old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and be renewed in, your, and be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self, created in the likeness of God and his true righteousness and holiness. And that's what we're going to talk about. What does it look like to put on the new self? If you are no longer associated with those people that you just thought about, if that is no longer your crew that you run with, but now you are part of a family that is called the church, adopted into God's family, you are a new creation, you have a new life in Christ, what does that actually look like to walk that out in obedience. So now we come to our text. I'll read it again just to remind us. It's been a second and it's really short, so I might as well. Ephesians 4.28. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone that is, that is in need. This is a tangible picture of repentance. This is, you once were stealing, walking in this direction, but what I need you to do is stop stealing. I need you to turn around, do honest work. But not only honest work, I need you to take a step forward and actually think about your neighbors. You once took advantage of the poor, 
but now I need you to look at the poor and live generously towards them. This is repentance that Paul is talking about, but it comes through the framework of work. So let's just start with that first section. Let the thief no longer steal. If we go back to verse 27, it says, give no opportunity to the devil, and then immediately transitions to our passage. If you are a thief who is stealing because of greed or laziness, what Paul is trying to do is tell you you are aligning yourself with Satan. If you are stealing in any capacity whatsoever, you are not acting like a son or daughter of God. You are acting like a son or daughter of disobedience. And your allegiance, you are declaring, is not to Christ. Your allegiance is to Satan. And I love that Paul does this because he's just reminding us. I know it's so hard for us in the 21st century to realize that there is not this false separation of physical and spiritual. The physical has implications on the spiritual. The spiritual has implications on the physical. I, ought to, I might have messed that up. But whatever, they come together. The physical and the spiritual come together as one. We are holistic human beings. You cannot dice us up and separate us. That's what Paul is saying. So that when you steal, you might just think this has impact on the physical world, but it does not. You are declaring allegiance to something, and the allegiance you are declaring is to Satan, not walking as a son or daughter of God. And how do we know this? Because in John 10.10 it says, the thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. Speaking of Satan as the thief, comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. But I have come that you may have life and have it abundantly. And what did the text that I just read talk about? That that what we're getting into is new life in Christ. Christ gives us life if we swear our allegiance to him, but what Satan does is steal, kill, and destroy. And if that is what your life is marked by, you might not say that you're swearing allegiance to Satan, but you are. By your actions, I see who who you're actually submitting to in your life. Ephesians 2, 1 through 3 makes it clear also that you're actually a son or daughter of God or a son or daughter of disobedience. You know, another thing I want us to do as we think about this, that not stealing, honest work, living for the good of our neighbor, I don't want us to think about a dark alley where someone is running by and stealing a purse from an old lady, you know, when we're thinking about theft. I'd like to think about it in more of our terms of the 21st century. I think of financial managers that sit down with us and tell us all the things that we need for security sometimes and paint this grim picture of life. If you don't get every single thing on the menu from what I'm trying to provide for you, then it's not going to provide the good life that culture tells you you just have to have. And if you want to have that good life, here is what you have to purchase. Here are the things you have to commit to. I think of a contractor. I just bought a home in October and I'm putting a bunch of stuff together and I deal with contractors all the time and I know I'm not the only one that when a contractor comes in or an electrician or a plumber, how many times do we pause? Because I don't know anything about that stuff. I don't know anything about electric work. I don't know anything about plumbing. I don't know anything that's going on under the house. So there's so much trust I put in them as they're selling me and telling me what I need. They're saying, here's what you have to have. Here's what you, here's what you desperately need to keep your house going on and keep your house working. Any of these things that I mentioned, if people knew the whole truth, they would not say yes to the operation, 
They may not say yes to the insurance that's being sold to them. And they may not say yes to the pipe under their house that really does nothing, but they were convinced that they desperately needed it. Is this not lying and stealing? Is this not? Creating needs that do not exist to get consumers to buy goods and services that they don't need? Is this not taking with dishonest gain? We will find out as we move forward that not only are things like this we have to consider, are we actually working honestly? Are we submitting our work to Christ in every aspect of what we do? Not only that, but it goes further to actually giving. Are we living generous lives towards our neighbors? Moving on in the text, it says, let him labor doing honest work with his own hands. And now I want us to take a moment and and talk through something that is assumed in the passage, but I don't want to skip over. Paul is assuming that the thief is making a willful choice to steal, so willfully stealing, but has the opportunity and ability to do honest work, and we cannot bypass this. He has an opportunity and ability to do honest work with his hands, and that's so important. We can't just read this and assume that there's equal opportunity and ability for every person in society. And also, I want us to remember that Paul is talking to the church. He's talking to Christians. You have a new life now in Christ, and therefore, you are held to a different standard than the world is held to. I look at you, church, as Paul is saying to the church in Ephesus, and I'm calling you to live according to a standard that is in submission to Jesus Christ and not by the world's standards. An African-American theologian that I'm friends with and I really appreciate his voice says, historically, it's been challenging for the African-American community to pick themselves up by their bootstraps and get to work when they don't have any boots. And this speaks to what I'm trying to get to when we think about the context of what Paul is, is saying in our current context today. I want to read an illustration just because I think this is so important. And this illustration is a little heavier, so I'm just going to preface it. Um, but it just gives us an idea of who Paul is speaking to and who I, I don't want us to think about people outside of this room. I don't want us to leave here, see our neighbor on the corner, and think, ah, well, they're lazy and they just need to get to work. I don't want us to think about other communities that might, might come to mind. I would like us to think about ourselves in this scenario. And this is just a story to illustrate the challenges that come into this text that we have to consider. Greenwood is a neighborhood in Tulsa, Oklahoma, as one of the most prominent concentrations of the African-American business community during the early 20th century. And this was actually coined the Black Wall Street. It was popularly known as the Black Wall Street until the Tulsa race riot in 1921, in which Oklahoma state government, with the assistance of Tulsa's white residents, just destroyed the entire community. Destroyed the entire community and devastated every business on the street. So, if business owners and survivors of the Tulsa race riot of 1921 began to steal, I would not come at them immediately and scold them for stealing and not working honestly with their hands. Why? Because they were working honestly with their hands, but something was taken from them. So we must understand that evil people steal but we also must understand that evil systems in society can make it almost impossible sometime for people not to steal. 
and there's never an excuse for stealing. Don't hear me. Don't hear me say there's any excuse if you ever steal. But what I want us to do is focus on ourselves, and that's why I say that. I say that just so we focus on ourselves when we're, when we're in this text and we're reading this. I want us to think about not anyone else in society, but I want to think about our own struggles with honest work. I want to think about our own struggles when we think about dishonest gain. I want to think about our own challenges that we personally face in, in loving our neighbor and, and being generous. So he carries on, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. You must not steal, we must work honestly, and we must share with those in need. There's a popular uh, story that a lot of you are familiar with called The Christmas Carol by Charles Dickens, and a famous character that a lot of us are familiar with, uh, Ebenezer Scrooge. A lot of us remember Ebenezer Scrooge from this, and he's visited by three gross, three gross, three ghosts during Christmas time, and the ghosts are trying to lead him towards life transformation, to actually walk in the way that he's supposed to walk. Now, Scrooge in this story is holding debt over people, but it doesn't seem like it's illegal in this story. It doesn't seem like it's, it's illegally gained, but there is evidence that he's holding debt over the poor. But there's also evidence that he was a brilliant businessman that accumulated vast, uh, you know, a, a vast amount of wealth for himself. So what's the challenge? with Ebenezer Scrooge. And what's the challenge with us? Is because culture could look at Ebenezer Scrooge and say, what's the problem? I'm not seeing the problem. He didn't break the law. He made a ton of money, and that's his right. He lives in America. He can do what he wants. So what's the challenge? Is because we look at this text as Christians, or we look at Ebenezer Scrooge, and we say it just can't stop there. It has to move us always towards our neighbor. It always has to move us towards generosity. The opposite of stealing in our passage is not just honest work, but cheerful giving. As I said before, repentance is walking away from dishonest gain, walking away from theft, and actually turning and walking towards Christ in generosity towards others. Your faith is always, always, always connected to somebody else. There is no such thing as just your personal faith. As I said, we're holistic people and we're part of a holistic creation. We are connected. So what Paul is explaining a reality, explaining a reality, and that's what Ebenezer Scrooge didn't get. When you're hoarding your wealth and oppressing the poor, that you are withholding generosity, gifts, and love from people that you are connected to, whether you like it or not. And we'd like to say, I worked hard for my money. And we did. A lot of us did. I went to school and maybe even grad school. I worked hard during this paycheck, and we did. I'm not, I'm not taking away from personal work ethic. You cannot hear me say that. Please do not hear me say that. I'm not taking away from that. Some of us would say, you don't know what I had to do to get to this place. You don't know what I went through. So how I want to spend my money, how I want to use my resources, how I want to steward the work and use the work that God has given me, that's a personal choice. That's up to me. That's not for anybody else to decide, and Paul would say otherwise. Paul didn't say that. Paul says it's actually, it's actually not up to you because you truly don't own anything. <laughs> Nothing actually belongs to you, church. Nothing belonged to them back in the church in Ephesus, and nothing belongs to us today. Jesus has ownership of everything, and all he does is allow you 
as his image bearers, to steward the things that he has given you. Power doesn't belong to you. Privilege doesn't belong to you. Wealth doesn't belong to you. Nothing belongs to you. And when we make affirmations like that and statements like that, what it does is it personalizes wealth and resources as if they're ours to begin with to hoard. And it's just not the case. It's not biblical, and there's no way we can read this passage and think that. We have to always remember, I'll keep saying it, always connected to a neighbor. Christ owns everything. When we do not give, we are stealing from God. God gives us what we have that we could bless others. And I think of a few people in particular. There's a good friend of mine um, in Phoenix named Ayasu Zaji. He was born in Ethiopia. Um, He started an incredible organization called Hope for Children. And he actually started the organization when he was a young teenager, when he was 15 years old. His faith came from his mom who passed down the faith to him. Um, And if you've ever been to Ethiopia, it's an incredible country with an incredible church, but extreme poverty in a lot of different ways and some real challenges. And one of the challenges they have is street kids. So Yasu thought it'd be a good idea to just go spend time. His faith compelled him to go spend time with street kids, living and sleeping on the street. And he rallied people to come with him, and that's how this organization started. Started with a few friends, and it went to 15 friends, and it went to 20 friends, spending and sitting with kids that lived on the street in Ethiopia. And I'll never forget, this sticks out to me so clearly in this story. He said, I knew because I actually had humans in mind. I had neighbors in mind. Every time I got a full sandwich, that half of that sandwich didn't belong to me and had to be given away. I had kids, names, on the street. And every time I had two pairs of shoes, I thought, one of those pairs of shoes has to be given away to my neighbor because it doesn't belong to me. He just recognized Ephesians 4.28. I also think of Steve Wheeler. He's an elder at Redemption Arcadia. Um, He was a managing partner of one of the biggest law firms in the state of Arizona and then ended up becoming COO of APS. And now he sits on the board of a ton of different nonprofits and different organizations. He's an elder at Arcadia, sits on the board with us. Uh, But he's an incredible man and understands that the connections and the resources and the relationships And the privilege that God has given him does not belong to him, and he gives it away. I can think of multiple times that I shoot a text to Steve, and all of a sudden I'm in a conversation on the phone with somebody that I never in a million years could could have connected to without Steve. That's stewardship. That's generosity. That's saying that all that I have, the resources, the connections, what God has given me in this life, it doesn't belong to me because it's not mine to, to begin with. Now, the challenge with this is it takes sacrifice. Generosity takes sacrifice because a lot of people, so think Steve and Ayasu, they give these things away, but what the world would say is you need something in return. But biblical generosity that comes from Christ says, I'm going to give freely and you owe me nothing. You can do nothing to repay me. You owe me nothing in return. This is a free gift to you. Here's a pair of shoes. Here's half a sandwich. Here's a contact that you never could have gotten in touch with. And it's not a tit for tat. Generous, sacrifice, sacrifice, giving it away. But it's a challenge. It's a challenge for us because we're in a culture now, as Tim Keller just spoke of in a message I just listened to him actually present to uh, the prayer breakfast in Parliament a little bit ago, and he gave a wonderful talk on Western culture and Christianity, and he said the challenge we face now is we're in a culture that's telling us that we need to be generous and we need to care for the poor, but the foundation is built on self-actualization and individualism. 
The foundation is built on you need to care for number one, which is you. If you're in a relationship that's detrimental or doesn't satisfy you in the way that you'd like, you need to break it. If you're in a job that doesn't give you what you personally need, you need to break it. But there's also this vision of you need to think outside of yourself and care for the poor. And Tim Keller says it'll never stand. It'll never stand up. We need a stronger foundation for our sacrifice and for our giving, and that can only be found in the gospel. We find no other fuel to live generously, continually, every day, laying down our life for our neighbor, giving when others don't deserve it, giving to our spouse, giving to our kids, constant generosity with the gifts and the skills and the resources that God has given us without Christ. Foundation. The gospel lays the foundation. So we come to the gospel and we take a moment to evaluate our own work. As Christians in this room that I'm speaking to now, and maybe you wouldn't classify yourself as a Christian, whether you're a homemaker, whether you're a banker, have you ever taken what doesn't belong to you? We take an evaluation. Have you taken what doesn't belong to you? Have you ever worked dishonestly? Have you withheld from those in need, even though that you knew you should give? And the answer, of course, for every single one of us is yes, me included. (laughs) Of course, the answer is yes. Because we recognize that we have done these things, but Jesus never has. Jesus is the only one who's never stolen, never been dishonest, and always generous. All the way from Eve, our first mother, the first thief till now, we are thieves at heart and unable to accomplish the mission of generosity that God calls us to. But Jesus was generous with his whole life and generous unto death so that we can live the life that God has called us to live. We don't just need Jesus to accomplish this, we don't just need Jesus so that we can accomplish this task. We actually have to look to Jesus as accomplishing the task for us. And then by faith in what he has already done in his life of generosity, that's how we have the strength and the perseverance to live the life of generosity that God has called us to live. But if we don't start there, and that is Ephesians 1 through 3. And that's why I went back through it. Because we have to have that as a foundation. We must always, every day. That's why I know you probably heard here a hundred times, you have to preach the gospel to yourself. You have to preach the gospel to yourself because living a Christian life is hard. Amen? Generosity for the sake of a neighbor is not easy. And the only thing that can sustain it is Jesus. And we look first, just staying with the gospel for a moment, we look first at the honest work of Jesus. Everything in the world belongs to Jesus, and he could have rightfully taken anything he wanted. Jesus could have taken anything, and it would not be stealing. It all belongs to him. But he chose to work. Jesus worked honestly for 30 years in ministry before God called him to vocational ministry. We want to make this false separation and say that true ministry only happened when Jesus called his first disciples the last three years of his life. But Paul would tell us otherwise, and that's just simply not true because 2 Corinthians 5.21 states, he that knew no sin, speaking of Jesus, this is the apostle Paul, he that knew no sin became sin. So what does that mean? That for 30 years, Jesus was a carpenter, he was a stonemason, whatever Jesus' vocation was at that time, working honestly with his hands, 
And Paul and God looked at it and said, sinless. Worthy, valuable, contributing to society, honest work with your hands. That is what I've called you to do. Not just those three years of your life when you're in vocational or Christian ministry, when you're in Christian ministry. No, no, no. The whole of Jesus' life was sinless. He is the example that we follow to do honest work because he lived that as well. For us that aren't in vocational ministry, where do we look? We look to Jesus to be our example of honest work. And secondly, we look to the generosity of Jesus. 2 Corinthians 8 9 says, For we know the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you may by his poverty become rich. Jesus never took a thing, did honest work for the whole of his life, and was generous with his whole life. However, we have taken, we have done dishonest work, and we have been greedy. Jesus takes our theft. Jesus takes our dishonesty. Jesus takes our greed and our laziness and takes it upon himself. And then he offers us back a new life. And that's what this passage is talking about. Here is what it looks like to not have to carry the burden of being dishonest anymore, of being a thief, of being greedy, of not actually being generous the way I've called you to do. Here's what this actually looks like to be free of that burden, but continue to live as God's people must live in the world as a reflection of Jesus to the whole world. So, a moment in the sermon where we take a moment to resubmit or for the first time submit our lives to Jesus because we recognize if we want to be a people marked by generosity, if we want to actually do honest work with our hands, we must have Jesus. He offers it to us freely, himself, the whole of who he is, and we come with open hands and say, Jesus, I need you. If I want to actually be generous to this person who has never been generous to me, who is an enemy in my life, I desperately need you. Jesus, if I actually want to stop taking for selfish gain, I desperately need you to sustain it because my heart keeps leading me towards selfish gain. So I ask you in this moment, submit your life to Jesus for the first time or maybe for the one millionth time if you've grown up a Christian. Give yourself to Jesus. And now we move on to our mission in the world from our text to the gospel rooted in Jesus. And then now, what does this mean as God's people moving, moving out into the world? Now, now we know that the only way to actually accomplish this mission is through Christ. The one thing that I want us to think about is just continuing to stay with generosity. And to actually live lives of generosity, Jesus must be all-satisfying. And that's the only way, if Jesus is all-satisfying, that's the only way we can fight greed. That's the only way we don't hoard like the rest of the world tells us to hoard without giving away freely, is we have to look at our stuff and say, this ultimately is not my identity, but Jesus is, and I never lose him. He bought me, and I never lose him. And until that grounds us, how can we actually live in generosity? But God calls us to. And we have to remember that giving to those in need is not optional. It's fueled by God's grace. But if you were born again, God calls us into it. However, I think it's also important to hear God's voice. I was listening to a training the other day, or I was part of a training the other day. 
where the person leading said, I've had to learn in my discipleship, it's another pastor, that I can't tell people what to do. I have to train them to hear God's voice. Because Jesus hasn't stopped making disciples. (laughs) Jesus made disciples 2,000 years ago, and he's still discipling today. I'm a disciple of Jesus, you're a disciple of Jesus, and through his word and through prayer, we have to hear his voice as he leads us in the way of obedience, especially when it comes to generosity. I can't look at your bank account, I can't look at your work, I can't look at your family and tell you how you need to be, to be generous. But Jesus can, because he has authority over you. So we have to come to Jesus and we have to learn to hear his voice And we have to remember that our work in and of itself, going back to the garden in Genesis 1 and 2, work in and of itself is a gift to be shared. Not just the financial gain that comes from our work, but the work in and of itself God calls us to generously share with others. So, from this, we look towards hope. And this is where I want to close us. What do we have to hope for? God created us to never steal, Work with honestly, work with honesty and give generously. However, just referring to the beginning, what I spoke of, sin, evil, and Satan has polluted this whole creation, and the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus gives us hope today, but also hope for a better life to come. Hope for a better day <laughs> that we long for as God's people. How many times I think about in Revelation when John at the very end has this plea, come, Lord Jesus, come. Because you give me strength, my identity is now found in you, but we live in a broken world, and this life is hard. Generosity for the sake of enemies, generosity for the sake of those that never give it in return is not an easy life. So we hold on to the hope that a better day is coming. When Jesus comes again to restore his kingdom, and bring heaven fully back to earth, generosity and kindness will be in everyone that has submitted their life to Jesus. When all things are reconciled back to Christ, we will no longer have to fight to forgive others in our society that have taken from us. Maybe you're the victim of theft. Maybe someone has constantly taken, 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 taken from you, and you fight to forgive. A day is coming when we will no longer have to fight to forgive our neighbor for not being generous. Greed, laziness, theft, and dishonesty will all pass away. One day, we will see Jesus face to face. And this is the day we long for, and this is the day we pray for. So pray with me, and let's long for that day together. God, I thank you so much for... um, for the life of Jesus, for the work of Jesus, God, for the sacrifice of Jesus and for the generosity of Jesus. Jesus, we do pray with the Apostle John, we want you to come again and make things new. This world, God, is beautiful. It is your creation, but it is a broken place, God, and we are tired of fighting sin. Give us the strength to persevere in it. Give us the strength to be generous But come, Lord Jesus, come soon. Amen.